see everyone. As was said earlier, we do have a number of visitors. We're glad you're here. And if you see a visitor's card just in front of you, perhaps on the back of the bench, if you grab one of those and fill that out, we would appreciate that. I'd like to have a record of you being here. But we welcome you, and uh, I hope we make you feel welcome. So I encourage the members here to reach out to you if you see a new face, and tell the person you're glad they came. This morning we're going to, we're wrapping up our first quarter. We are talking about the Lord's Church this year. And as you can see above me, our main focus this quarter has been order in my church. And I want to return back to where our theme verse for the quarter at least comes from. And that is the idea in 1 Corinthians 14 of doing all things decently and in order. And next Sunday morning, we'll kind of wrap up and summarize what we've been talking about through the uh, quarter. And more, I'm going to segue into the next quarter. As I said, these first two really go together, so I'll do that next Sunday. But this is kind of, in one sense, a wrap-up to the, the things we've been talking about, or at least everything's been leading up to this. So I want to talk about doing things decently and in order. Let's go back. There we go. Let's go back and begin to look at... The idea in 1 Corinthians 14, and if you turn with me to that passage, you notice what I say up here, and I believe, and, and I want to try to explain that. This 1 Corinthians 14 is a, is a view, a picture, of what you might see in the first century of an assembly of the church. We are assembled together this morning. It is obviously the 21st century. And... Uh, but yet, if we went back 2,000 years and we looked at the first century, I think we would see churches like this doing these things. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means some things that they would be doing in the church at Corinth would be restricted to the first century. And we will see that and talk about that a little bit this morning. However, the, the basic idea of assembling together as Christians, of coming together to worship on the first day of the week, I think it is obvious from the book, uh, you know, the Lord's Supper in chapter 11, the giving and so forth in chapter 16 on the first day of the week, that it wasn't all that different from what we're doing today. So the circumstances surrounding may be different. But basically the church is meeting together, they are assembling just as we have assembled this morning. So it gives us some insight into what the Lord wants as we come together. So let's begin to talk about that. The New Testament teaches us, that is, all Christians, it teaches us the importance of maintaining order. Now, I'm going to talk a lot about that this morning. There is order in the Lord's church, and I want you to understand that. Wherever the Lord's church is found, and that you have to preface it by saying that, where it is found, there is order. But it's impressed upon us as members of the church and as members here at this place to maintain the order in the Lord's church. It impresses upon each member, that is the New Testament does, it impresses upon each member, every one of you who are members of the church, it impresses the responsibility of what we might call keeping house. This is the house of the Lord, and you know the phrase keeping house, and the idea of maintaining order within a home or within anything that we call a house. It impresses us to keep house, and that requires each member's contribution to the order of the whole. Now, let's talk more about that. If we went back to the last lesson, and this kind of is part two of what I was saying from Ephesians and uh, chapters two and four, 
If we talk about that which every joint supplies in chapter 4, if we talk about the church being fitly framed together, or if you remember I said literally in the original that phrase means it all hinges on, as we would say today. It all hinges on so and so. Well, order in the Lord's church, order, and let me be more restrictive, order in the church here at East Orange all hinges upon what we do. What responsibility we take as individual members to keep house. Now that is as opposed to the denominational idea that order rests upon some group of individuals. We can read about various denominations, the one that I studied for in, you know, in school down in Virginia. We can read about how there is a headquarters somewhere. And how a group of of men or a group of men and women meet together and decide what rules and laws and bylaws or what, in the case of exactly where I went, what will constitute the fundamentals if we're going to remain a fundamentalist group, the basics, etc. Some group somewhere decides that. Sometimes order in the minds of people rests upon one individual. And that may be the pastor as they would view that person, who occupies the pulpit. I uh, was studying in an independent Baptist church, and the whole role of the pastor and the power that he has and the authority he has as he speaks from this pulpit, you know, or whatever pulpit where he is, it rests upon him. But you see, in the New Testament, God is not placing the honest upon a group of individuals or one individual to maintain order. No, it all hinges in the New Testament on a group of people who come together and are impressed to maintain, not create, not establish, but maintain the order that God has set. The church is a monarchy, and we should recognize that. It is not a democracy. Let's start with that. And sometimes we we get so carried away in each one of us having a voice, having an opinion, having a vote, because we live in a democracy. Government, our government is a democracy. The church is not a democracy. The church is a monarchy, which means literally one single ruler. And I quote here from 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16. Jesus is the blessed and only potentate, or absolute sovereignty, of the church. Now, if I understand that, then I know I have no vote, I have no say in the order of this congregation. Jesus has all the say. He has everything to say. It is simply my job to maintain that order. He is my king, and though I dearly love him, as we see, he is my king. He says, he wills, I comply, I obey. And so the idea of maintaining order is following the lead of the monarchy. And I think you can clearly see this if we look at 1 Corinthians 14, and especially if we note the correlation to the book of Ephesians, especially chapter 4. I believe we can see that that's exactly what Paul is saying, and we're going to emphasize that from chapter 14. Where there was disorder, and maybe no church in the New Testament was in more disorder or disarray or confusion, as the King James would call it, than the church of Corinth. But where there was disorder, Paul was encouraging, notice, not order to be established, not for people to come together and mutually agree upon some things so they can be orderly. No, but Paul was encouraging them to restore and maintain the Lord's order. Now let's dig a little deeper into that. You've seen this throughout this quarter. 
Jesus Christ is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. And we are living stones, the church, built upon the foundation and cornerstone of Jesus. But let's look at a, a, a few verses here. And I'll emphasize these as I make a couple of points. We go back to Hebrews chapter 12. You may want to turn to Hebrews 12 for a moment. If Jesus is the foundation and cornerstone, and we know he is, being the foundation and cornerstone of the church ensures that it is a timeless institution. What do I mean by that? There will always be a church. Whether East Orange, the church at East Orange, maintains the order that Christ has willed or not, there will be a church. Whether the churches across the nation of the United States maintain that order, there will always be a church. Whether every single church that we are aware of in the world maintains that order or not, there will be a church. We may not know where it is. We may not know who the people are. We may be as dumbfounded as, say, Elijah in his day when he thought he was the only one. And the Lord said, no, i got 7,000 you don't know about. It may be that, but there will always be a church because Jesus is the foundation. He is the cornerstone. And God has already willed that as long as time goes on, until that day and hour, there will be the kingdom of the Lord. Jesus will be king over some group of people who maintain his order. Now that being said, as we look at, at Hebrews chapter 12, you notice the, the, uh, the author of Hebrews is saying, we have come to such a kingdom. We have come to such a place as this. We are the church of the firstborn. Jesus is the firstborn. Incidentally, a few weeks ago when I made a statement going back and looking at that, and I went back and listened to it, I said, I read this in Hebrews 12, and I said, Jesus is the firstborn, and he is. But the church is the church of the firstborn ones because we are in him. And as long as we are in him and as long as we comply with what he wills, we will continue to be that church. But you notice as he wraps this up in Hebrews 12 and when he says down in verse 28, and read this together with me, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom or having received a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. This is a kingdom which cannot be moved. Literally, it cannot be shifted off its foundation. And that's exactly what he is saying. The foundation is sure. It is established. It is guaranteed that it will be there. God has ensured that. These are things which cannot be shaken, and so they will remain. God will not allow the church to be destroyed. I've listened to people and heard people make statements about, you know, if we're not careful or we don't do this or we don't do that, there's not going to be a church anymore. Wrong! There will be a church. We may not be it, but there will be a church. It cannot be moved. It cannot be shaken. This is the kingdom we have received. It's, we, we've been entrusted with this kingdom. And we're part of it. But you notice as he goes on to say here, therefore, verse 28, or wherefore, that is why, having received this kingdom, let us serve, let us have grace or favor. What does that mean? That means let's be favored by God. Let's make sure that we're in God's favor. The kingdom will be there. 
But let's make sure we're part of it. Let us serve God acceptably. Notice that phrase. Notice that word. Acceptably. Which means you can actually be unacceptable in what you do. This idea that just because I like it or you like it or we all like it makes it acceptable. No. It is only acceptable because the king accepts it. Let us serve God acceptably. And you'll notice he says with reverence and with godly fear. Now, those are two different ideas. One is the idea of respect. Respect that you have for a superior, a greater. And I think all of us here would admit Jesus is far superior, far greater than any of us, or all of us collectively. But not only that, with fear. When Jesus said, for example, fear not, and I'll paraphrase, man who can kill you. He went on to say fear. Fear the one who can destroy your body and soul in hell. Fear that one. Because God means, He insists, He demands we do things the way the King says do. And He will not accept anything less. It speaks to our responsibility to maintain order, to do all things, and we will get there in 1 Corinthians 14, all things decently and in order. And you'll notice he says in verse 29, for our God is a consuming fire. What does that mean? Well, in this context, this is what I believe this this means. The kingdom will be here, but the church in East Orange will not necessarily be. That depends on what we do. Because you see, and if you'll turn over to Revelation and look at chapter 2, here was the church at Ephesus. And we're going to talk about the church at Corinth, but let's for a moment talk about the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus, by the time John writes in the book of Revelation, the message comes to them, has been in existence over 30 years. And they've fought some battles, and they've had some doctrinal struggles, and they've been faithful through all of that. And yet, what has happened to them, if you notice, nevertheless, I have something against you, he says to them, because you've left your first love. And I counsel you. I warn you. I tell you that if you don't get back to loving me the way you should love me, then I will come, Jesus says, and I will remove your candlestick, your lampstand. Now, what does that mean? Do we see that happen? No. We we can't tell when that happens. We can't watch it and see it. Jesus won't come as some robe figure walking through the back of the building, walk up here, jerk me out of the pulpit and say it's done. But it will happen. Because as far as God's recognition of the church, if it ceases to maintain order, If it does not, as as Revelation 2 says to the Ephesians, if they do not repent and go back to what they were once, Jesus will remove the lampstand. And as far as Jesus is concerned, this will no longer be his church. The church will be somewhere, but it won't be here. Or we might look at the church at Laodicea in chapter 3. And Jesus addressed them. And what he said to them is, you need a cold, and if you were totally cold, I might could address you and really make you realize where you were, but you're not hot either. 
<coughs> in fact, you are lukewarm, and that sickens me, and so I will vomit you out of my mouth. Now, when we look at phrases like, I'll remove your candlestick or lampstand, or I'll vomit you out of my mouth, what Jesus is saying is, if you do not maintain the order, my order, in the congregation, I'll consume you. You'll be done. Our God is a consuming fire. Let's go back to, whoop, back up and go back to the church at Corinth. I want you to open up with me to 1 Corinthians. And if you'll notice... In 1 Corinthians chapters 12 through 14 especially, but really the end of chapter 11 through 14, Paul is addressing the congregation, the church, and what they do at Corinth. So I want to talk a little bit about that. Throughout these three and a half chapters, Paul is addressing the individuals at Corinth, and he is basically saying each individual needs to take part in the maintaining of this order. Now again... Go back to what I started with. It doesn't rest upon a group of people somewhere, and it doesn't rest upon one individual, whether that's the preacher or whoever it is. It rests upon the members of the church at a locale, at East Orange, in our case. Each individual is encouraged to take part. Well, what does that mean? (laughs) First of all, in their problem, they were so divided because of the spiritual gifts that had been given. And how crazy is that? God gives these gifts to them to enable them to come together and to mutually share these things so they can be everything He wants. And they fight about it. They covet the gifts that others have visually. They covet the tongues that some have. And you can see this in chapter 12. Does everybody have the same gift, Paul asked rhetorically? No. Is everybody given to be an apostle or a prophet? No. What it is throughout chapter 12, as you scan that chapter, is that everybody has a part. Do your part. Stay in your place. Do your role. Do what God gave you. And if you do that, how beautiful. It all comes together, and we are a church as God meant us to be. Get out of that. Begin to desire, covet, you know, want what somebody else has. Only want to do what somebody else is given to do. And you got a problem, and they had a problem. Each individual needs to take part. And don't overemphasize. Go with me, if you will, to chapter 14. Notice how he says, beginning in verse 1, he really homes in on this idea. Follow after love. He's just spent the chapter, you know, chapter 13, the great chapter on love. Follow after love and desire, want spiritual gifts. That's a good thing. To want the gifts God has given. Now, in our day and time, we don't have these miraculous gifts. But we do have abilities. We know as we get older, and you know, when you're little kids, when I grow up, I'm going to be so-and-so. But early on, things begin to take shape. And as you grow older and grow older and reach adulthood, you begin to find your place. And if you don't, you are encouraged to look at yourself to really realize what's been given to you. What are you good at? We hear people saying that. What are you good at? What can you do? What are you inclined toward? What do you like? All of those kinds of questions because it points to what God has given you. Now what Jesus is saying is take that in our day and put it together with what everybody else has and what everybody else can do. And man, what a beautiful situation we'll have at East Arm. But sit back and covet what somebody else does. I don't want to do what I do. 
I don't like who I am. I want to be that person. Do that and we've got a problem. Or notice down in verse 12 when he says this. And I'm not going to read everything today, but let's go down to verse 12. Even so you, for as much as you are zealous. Now notice, when he had said desire spiritual gifts in verse 1. Follow love. Desire spiritual gifts, but that you may prophesy. In other words, use what God has given you to teach and contribute to the whole. Now notice verse 12. For as much as you are zealous, and that word sometimes is translated envious or jealous with a J, as you are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that you may excel in the edifying of the church. Notice how he's turned it around. He's used extreme words for both ideas in verse 1. Don't just, you are not people who simply desire the gifts God has given you so you can use them for the good of everybody. No, you're zealous. You're even jealous and envious and you covet because you look at what someone else can do and you say, I want that. I don't want to be who God gave me to be. I don't want to do what God gave me to do. I want to do that. And it's an overemphasis of some abilities, some capabilities. Maybe a person has some ability in some area and what they want to do is show off with it. You know, I just want to, I want everybody here to know how great a preacher I am. So every chance I get, man, I'm going to open my mouth and run my mouth. And if you bring up something and I happen to know something about it, you're going to get every bit of it. You ever known anybody like that? You ever known anyone who has an ability? And I mean, you would look at that person and you say, you know, you're really good at so-and-so, but they shove it in your face so much, you can't stand to see that person exercise that ability. God is saying, Follow love. Pursue prophesying. Teaching with what I've given you. God is saying in verse 12, don't overemphasize what I've given as if to show off, shove in the face. But verse 12, seek that you may excel, notice, not to your gift, but to the edifying or the building up of the church. Be zealous of that. Want that. At East Arm. Want to be able to contribute, not show off. And there sometimes can be a fine line, you cross that. But want to contribute what God has given. Notice he goes on here to say, excel in edifying. You know, the word edifying means to build up, and it literally means to build the house. And we always say it means to build the house in the faith. And when you're accomplishing that, you know, you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, and I did that in the last lesson, so I won't do it again this morning. But verse 11 says, It is given to some to be apostles, and some to be prophets, and some to be evangelists, and some pastors, and some teachers. It's given to people to be those things. But there's all these lists of purposes, beginning in verse 12. You know, for the, the, the perfecting of the saints, and all of that kind of thing. And then down in verse 16, as you reach the bottom of that, or the the end of that thought, what he says is that which every joint, every single member, just like every member of your body, contributes to you being healthy. Then every member here contributes to the health of this congregation. And that's what he's saying. Excel in that. You know, metaphorically, if you see yourself as a knee, be the best knee you can be. You know, do the most for this body that you can do. 
If you see yourself being a pinky or a little toe, then be the best you can be. Think in terms of what this church will be doing without if they don't have your little pinky toe. Okay, they will suffer. I had a cousin that was very sleepy one morning, got up one morning, he was out mowing the grass and just kind of going along his eyes closed and the grass and so forth. And the lawnmower hit something and he walked right into it. He lost three toes off of one of his feet. And I will promise you that now, 45 years later, if you ask him, do you miss those toes? He still misses those toes. You have something to contribute. contribute. Keep a proper balance, though. Notice how he goes on in verse 20. Drop down to verse 20 with me. Brethren, be not children in understanding. Now notice this. How be it in malice, be children. But in understanding, be men. There's a proper balance there. I want to be like a child and I want to be like an adult. And that's really what Jesus calls us to do. We can look at a lot of different passages and we can see that that is exactly what God wants out of us. Sometimes be children. In things like malice, you know, a kid doesn't want to hurt anybody. They learn to. But a little child, we got little children running around this place. They have no malice in them at all. There's no ill will. There's no bad feeling. They don't hate anybody. Like Everton said this morning, think of the person you can't stand. They don't have anybody they can't stand. They don't know that. They don't understand that. In malice, be like children. And you know, if, if, that, if a church is like that, if a church takes upon itself where it looks at itself and it says every member here contributes, every member here is equal, every member here is important, every single member is as good as every other member. If we were like that, how much further ahead would we be? In understanding, be adults. Because when it comes to knowing the truth and obeying God and understanding what the Lord wants, you need to get more and more and more mature, wiser the older you get but always maintaining that balance of being like a child when it comes to your will toward others, your feeling toward others. Let's talk about the assembly at Corinth. You notice how I said that a little different. The church at Corinth, that's the whole, that's the body. A number of times in in this section, and you see it throughout this section, the individual members, You are one body. You are members in particular and individually. The individual, starting in chapter 11, when he's talking about the Lord's Supper, they come together, and he uses that word, come together. They gather. They join their efforts. They come together in an assembly because they are called by God to do so. And if they maintain what God has said do when they do that, then there will be beautiful order in the Lord's church. And if they don't, then there will be total disorder. So when you come together, when you assemble at Corinth, notice how he teaches that all should prophesy. Now we read a couple of verses already. The emphasis on prophesying, beginning in verse 1. But notice how he says this, and just read this little section with me in verse 23 beginning. If therefore the whole church, the whole body, be come together. Now that's the idea of every individual is assembling. Come together into one place. Notice he says, and all speak with tongues. What does that mean? Well, we have people here, different ones, who speak different languages. 
I know Spanish can be spoken. I know French can be spoken. I know there's some African dialects that can be spoken. I can stand and read Greek for you. And let's suppose we all did that at once. Every one of us. Wes can throw a little southern in there for you. So we're all doing that at once. And somebody walks through the back door and he listens and looks at all that and says, man, what a bunch of nuts. Well, isn't that exactly what's being said here? Verse 23. You're all speaking with different languages and there comes in one that's unlearned. He doesn't know. He's an unbeliever. Will he not say you're mad? You're crazy. I don't want any part of this. This is not where I need to be. Now notice as he goes on here, verse 24. But... If all prophesy. Now, sometimes people look at that and they'll say, well, what's the difference in people speaking in 20 different languages or 20 different people speaking at the same time? None. But he will tell you how all can teach at once. If all prophesy and there come in one that doesn't believe or one that's unlearned, he will be convicted of all. He will be judged of all. In other words, sentenced of all. This is what you need to be. And verse 25, the secrets of his heart will be made clear. And so falling down on his face, he will worship God. And he will say, God is in these people of a truth. This is the truth. I finally found it. And a person might say, how? How does that happen? How does a whole church teach at once? Well, he tells you, verse 26. Because we all do what God has given us to do. And nothing more and nothing less. How is it then, brethren, when you come together? Every one of you, notice, whole group, everybody, every one of you has a song. We all sang. You know, T.J. led us in some beautiful songs and we sang. We are all joining efforts. I imagine a person walking through the back door like I was once. And this is different, man. i never seen anything like this. Where I came from, you know, my grandmother got up, went to the piano, I followed. That's how we did it. But you watch people and you see a hundred people enthusiastically singing a song and lifting up praises to God. And you just watch them. I did. You watch their faces. You look at the expression of what's coming from their heart. You see that, that they really believe the things they're singing. At least that's what they should believe. And that's what people should see. Paul said, every one of you has a psalm. You all have a teaching, a doctrine. We all believe the same thing. We all teach the same thing. Yes, in that day they had tongues and revelations and interpretation. And today we don't, but we have gifts and abilities and capabilities. And we're all pooling that effort. And someone walks in and says, man, this is a beautiful thing. This is where I need to be. This is what I need to be part of. This is what I see in the New Testament. All things done to edify. Everybody respecting the contribution of everybody else. And you see that in verses 27 and following. And respect is demanded for everyone else. It's not a bunch of people clamoring to be first. Be noticed. Me. You know, I love sports and I love team sports. But I hate, for example, what I call me-ball. Montel knows exactly what that is. Me-ball. And me-ball is when you have a team sport, but you have one person that wants to be it. I want to be the whole show, and I want everybody to know it, and I want everybody to see it. And if you don't, then I'm going to be louder and louder about it. I hate that. If you ask me what players are my least favorite, 
Meatball players. And if you ask me what players are my favorite players, they are the players who care first about the team. They contribute to the team. And if that means sacrificing a stat here and there so their line, and you sports people know exactly what I mean, doesn't look quite as good, so what? Michael Jordan, when he was averaging 37 points a game, could not win anything. Michael Jordan averaging 28 and 29 points a game and making everybody around him better won six championships. That is the difference. And that's what God is saying, too. The contribution of everybody. It's orderly. It's respectful. It's with the goal of edification. The church being built up in the faith. You see that. Verse 26. Let all things be done to edify And that there may be peace. Look at verse 33. God is not the author of confusion or disorder, but of peace as in all the churches of the saints. And that people may be encouraged and they may learn, verse 31. Look at verse 31. For you all, for you may all prophesy one by one that all may learn and all may be comforted or encouraged is the word there. Now when that's going on, when every one of us is leaving here and there's been peace and we've learned something, and we're encouraged by being here, and we feel a part of something, we did our part. Don't you feel good? Doesn't doesn't that accomplish something spiritually within you? That's what Paul is saying. And avoid disorder, verse 33, because God is not the author of that. And observe a spirit of silence. You'll notice three times in this paragraph, he mentions the word silence. I find it interesting that most people only know one. Of the three. But he mentions it three times. He talks about certain restrictions. He talks, for example, of if there's no interpreter for an unknown tongue, then don't speak. Because it's not going to edify. Now, you know, there's a lesson there. If I've got something to say, no matter how well I say it, if it is not going to build someone else up, then shut up. Because it does not help. That's what he's saying. Be silent. Second restriction is if you're out of order. Notice how he keeps saying here, one by one, or by course, or in order, some of your translations say it. It's a respect. I want you to flip back, and I know it's late, but go back with me briefly to Acts chapter 15. In Acts 15, they had a problem, and they came together to discuss it. I want you to read just verses 12 and 13 with me. The same word, silence, is used here. All the multitude kept silence. Because somebody was speaking. You know, this day and time where you speak over the other person. Turn on the news tomorrow and try to watch an interview about anything. It it doesn't matter what it's about. The person who is on the other side is just sitting there, jumping, ready, waiting to jump in and talk over you. And as soon as they start talking, that person is waiting and waiting. And then I've got a breath and I jump in and talk over you. Nothing gets accomplished. We go back to the church in the first century. When one person was speaking, everybody else was quiet. They kept silence and they gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, who were declaring what miracles and wonders God had worked among the Gentiles. Notice verse 13. And after they held their peace. So Paul and Barnabas finished. What a novel idea. Let somebody speak, let them finish. They held their peace. James answered. And he said, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. And they did. 
And in the end of this discussion, this dialogue, this debate that went on between them, they accomplished something. You know, the third time it's used, and this is the one everybody knows, let the women keep silence. It has nothing to do with person. It doesn't have to do with who's more important. When people are sitting and allowing someone else to talk and not interrupting, doesn't mean that other person's a better person than I am. That I'm not as important. That i got to talk over that individual or louder than that individual. i got to interrupt that individual because I'm more important. God's way is no, everyone is equal. But there is a time and place and role for everybody. Fill that place. And if you do that in the right time and situation, there will be edification. Maintain humility. Let's close by reading verses 36 through 39. Paul says, what? Did the word of God come out from you? Who did it come from? Who told us these things? Who mandated this? Jesus. Did it come to you all? Is this only for Corinth? Not for East Orange 2,000 years from now? No. He's still the king. Notice as he goes on in verse 37. If any man think himself to be a prophet... Or spiritual. You know, there are people that really think, you, you may not know this, but I'll let you in on something. Do you know there are, really, there are people who really think they're more spiritual than other people? Do you know there are people who really think they've got something to say and they're the only one who's got that thing to say? If any man thinks himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I... Now, who in the world among us would say Paul was not a prophet or spirit? The things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. And that's it. That's the end-all, be-all to everything that's being said. If you want to be ignorant of that, you don't want to know that, you can be ignorant of that. But brethren, verse 39, covet to prophesy and forbid not to speak with language. Let all things be done decently and in order. Are you here today and you're not a child of God? You look at yourself, you look at this church, you look at who you are, and you say, I know I have something to give. I know I have something to contribute. The Lord is calling me to do that. I need to obey the Lord. I need to confess my belief in Him that He's the Son of God. I need to repent. I need to change some things in my life. I need to be baptized because the Lord has said, be baptized and wash away your sins, and I need to do that. And maybe you're here today and you look at yourself and you've done all that, and you say, I need to step up and I need to be part of the ones maintaining the order. Because this is the Lord's church and we want it to continue to be so. If you need to come, please come. I'll teach you to leave you